Greetings from the Classic City. I am Jamie Cheek. This is A View from the Couch. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast today. Today's episode, we're going to preview the big game between Texas A&M and Georgia that's coming up tomorrow. And despite the fact that Tech went out and beat NC State last night after I openly mocked them on my uh, Week 13 viewing guide, I still don't think the Tech game is going to be that big of a challenge for the dogs which means this game against Texas A&M tomorrow is the final regular season hurdle before Georgia has their big game against LSU. And a win tomorrow for Georgia will mean that the LSU game is a win-and-you're-in proposition for the dogs and as it pertains to the college football playoff. So going to give you a lot of interesting facts about Texas A&M today. Yeah, this is the first time that Georgia has – faced A&M since the uh, Aggies joined the SEC in 2012. So going to give you a little bit of information just about their school, their coach, some of their history. Not too much, not so much to bore you, but just so you kind of have some context. Then we'll break down uh, Texas A&M season, give you some of the interesting statistics as it comes to their team and their key players. And then finally, we'll wrap it up today with a prediction sure to be wrong uh, on the Georgia Texas A&M game. So thank you again so much for listening today, and we'll get started with the history of Texas A&M. So Texas A&M joined the SEC in 2012, and because of the way the conference chose to set up their schedule, which has actually been a pretty controversial decision, um, This is the first time since 2012 that Georgia and Texas A&M will actually play. So A&M visits Athens uh, tomorrow, and then Georgia doesn't go to Kyle Field until 2024. So a little bit of background on the scheduling. Uh, The SEC, uh, since they expanded in 1992 uh, and went to two divisions and started having a championship game, the SEC played eight conference games. That was a very standard... um, kind of model most of the conferences were playing eight conference games when expansion happened around the 2011 and 2012 seasons and conference realignment happened uh, in the Big Ten the the Pac-12 and the SEC and the ACC excuse me when all that conference realignment started a lot of conferences went to a nine game conference schedule so the Big Ten plays nine games the Pac-10 or sorry, the Pac-12 plays nine games, and the Big Ten, or Big 12, which I have talked about a couple times, sorry I'm getting all these numbers confused, the Big 12 that only has 10 teams now, and this is why it's so confusing, they play nine games where it's a round robin. Everyone plays everyone, and then they still have a championship game. I voiced my frustration and uh, concern about that a few times on the podcast, but the SEC opted to stay at eight, and the reason they opted to stay at eight is to preserve the extra home game every single year that most of the SEC teams uh, schedule. And so a typical SEC schedule is seven or eight home games, depending on how you set up your season. But with four non-conference games, if you're like Texas A&M and you don't have a traditional rival anymore that you play every single year because their series with Texas that was their main rivalry that would be played on the last Saturday of the season – Sometimes it was played on the Friday after. I remember watching a couple of uh, Texas and Texas A&M games on, on Black Friday, and it was just kind of a, 
a really neat game to be able to see, you know, not on Saturday when all the other rivalry games were going down. It stood out that that game was on Friday. But if you if you don't have that, well, then you can schedule four non-conference, you know, cupcake teams, and they can all be home games, and that's more revenue for the schools. On the flip side, if you're like Georgia and you've been scheduling all these home-and-homes, Alabama doing the same thing, they, they more do the neutral site game, not a whole lot of home-and-homes for Alabama. But if you're scheduling these really intriguing neutral site games or home and home series, if you only have, if you play nine conference games, there's a chance in some of those years that you would then lose a home game if you're on the road to somewhere else. And if it hits in a year where that ninth conference game is also a road game, you could potentially have a situation where you only have six home games. And for most schools, that is very abnormal. For Georgia, that's not as abnormal because we play uh, the Florida and Georgia game down in Jacksonville every year. And so that happens to Georgia from time to time where we'll only have six home games. But there's a lot of SEC schools that end up with eight home games every single year. And so if you if you do it that way, the loss of a home game by going to a ninth conference game is a huge revenue problem. Now, the other – so staying with eight home games means – that you only play your natural rival every year. For Georgia, that's Auburn. For Texas A&M, they got paired up with South Carolina. That's not a natural rivalry that goes back like some of the traditional rivalries in the conference do, but they're trying to make a rivalry out of it. Um, So Georgia plays Auburn every single year, and then they have one other conference game against an SEC West team. So this year... We play A&M. Last year, we played LSU. Next year, we're on the road at Alabama. So because of that, you don't get to see each team in the league as often. So I believe that eventually, and eventually being after the 2025 season, when the SEC contract, the TV contract comes around in 24, the uh, current schedule is locked in through 25, I think they'll reshuffle. I think they'll go to nine home games and or sorry, nine conference games, and we'll go to one rivalry game, and then each year you'll play two teams from the West. And that would ensure that in a four-year career, the every player would play every school in the conference, which I think is good. I think it's better to have the old system where, you know, let's say if, if A&M was coming to Athens this year, we would be going to A&M next year. And teams rotate in and on in and out of the schedule uh, every two years. So you would you would always have that home game and then a return away game or vice versa. So because of that, and because this is the first time that Georgia has seen A&M in a non-bowl game since 1980, let's talk a little bit very, very quickly about Texas A&M. So as I was doing some research, you know, Basically, the Southwest Conference from 1915 to 1996, the Southwest Conference was all the Texas schools plus Arkansas. And when I say all the Texas schools, I'm talking about Rice, uh, SMU, Texas Tech, Texas, obviously. So the old Southwest Conference was really revolutionary. If you haven't watched the um, the Pony Excess 30 for 30. I would exp- I, I think it's worth an hour and a half of your time. Talks about the big scandal around SMU. But one of the things that they talk about in there is just the Southwest Conference in general, what it meant to college football, the brand of college football that they played, how entertaining, up-tempo, spread it out, throw it a lot. 
you know, and how it was really a revolutionary conference, especially in the late 70s and to the mid 80s. Well, that conference disbanded after the 1996 season and kind of reformed as the Big 12. And so the Big 12 existed from 1996 to 2011, and it still exists in name. But as I've said, the conference realignment really messed up the Big 12. And so A&M went from the Southwest Conference to the Big 12. And then after the 2011 season, joined the SEC for the 2012 um, kind of academic year and the football season starting then. So in researching a little bit, two Alabama coaches that won national championships, Bear Bryant and Gene Stallings, both started or were at A&M before they went to Alabama. If you haven't seen, it sounds like I'm plugging ESPN today. If you haven't seen the ESPN documentary of the Junction Boys, or if you remember something about that, that was uh, Bear Bryant's first team at Texas A&M. And so they went one and nine in his first year. A lot of players quit the team. It was, you know, he was really, really hard on them, but then turned around two years later and actually won the Southwest Conference. Um, Obviously, Bear Bryant would leave uh, A&M and have one of the most storied coaching careers in all of college football history at Alabama. Gene Stallings would be at Texas A&M from 1965 to 1971, also won a Southwest Conference championship. He would win the national championship with the Tide in 1992. So kind of interesting. And, I, you know, their their current coach, A&M's current coach, is uh, Jimbo Fisher. And he stands out because he's one of only four active coaches right now with a national championship. So that seems kind of crazy that that could be the case. But you have Dabo, Saban, obviously, uh, Les Miles out in Kansas, and he just got back into coaching. And then Jimbo Fisher, who won the national championship in 2013 with Florida State and Jameis Winston. So Fisher was the coach in waiting for a long time under Bobby Bowden there at uh, Florida State. They ran Bobby Bowden off. Fisher takes the job, uh, wins a national championship, but Texas A&M lured him away with a big old pile of money. 10-year contract, $75 million. Um, So Jimbo has taken the job at Texas A&M. I believe this is his third season as A&M coach after uh, Kevin Sublin uh, was fired. Might be his second season. But either way, Texas A&M is one of, I think, one of the most difficult jobs in the country. And the reason is you play in a conference with Auburn, LSU, and Alabama. Those teams, even if, you know, Even if they're not great, they're still good. They're still going to have players. They're still going to have athletes. So to be in that division year in and year out is very, very challenging. You know, there's been a lot of talks around in the Arkansas job right now. Who would want that job? How in the world do you get Arkansas to the point to where they're relevant in that division when they are way behind everybody else in the SEC? To me, the A&M job is just about as thankless and maybe a little bit more difficult because there's genuine expectation. I mean, when you pay a coach $75 million over a decade, you expect to win. And Texas A&M have some very high expectations. They expect Jimbo to come in and make them a power. And it's hard for any program to move up significantly when you have big programs with successful coaches kind of in front of you. Alabama is obviously the gold standard in college football. There's no denying that right now. 
But I think there's starting to be some chinks in the armor. But it looks like LSU, after the season they're having this year, and then you know who knows what the next couple years will look like once Joe Burrow is no longer there, and you start losing some of these assistants, you never know what could happen. But this year, as Alabama maybe took a little bit of a step back, LSU was the team that was able to capitalize on that. And for Texas A&M, they recruit really well. Obviously, being in Texas, one of the hotbeds of college uh, football, high school football, where there's so many prospects that come out of that state, they recruit very well in Texas. They recruit very well in the conference. But I think Texas A&M is a little bit, from a recruiting standpoint, kind of what Georgia was under Mark Rick. They may finish 10th in the nation every single year. And you may be thinking, wow, top 10 class. Wow, top 10 class. The problem is they might be sixth in the conference. And two of the teams that they're consistently finishing behind are in their same division. And then Auburn's right there. They could be 10th in the country and fourth in their division. And when it's continuously happening that you're just not getting those elite players, then you're always just a little bit behind. And I think that's probably where Texas A&M is this year. If you look at their schedule so far, they're 7-3 and three on the season. Um, and they have had and continue to have, in my opinion, the hardest schedule in college football. Their three losses are to Clemson, Auburn, Alabama. They're coming to Athens this weekend, where they are a 13.5-point underdog. And next weekend, they will end their season on the road at Tiger Stadium against LSU. There's a very strong possibility that this Texas A&M team could be the best 7-5 and team in the history of college football. And I know that sounds stupid, but think about that schedule. You're talking about Alabama, who's ranked number five right now. You're talking about Clemson, ranked number two, or three. LSU, ranked number one. Georgia, ranked number four. And then Auburn, who I think is maybe 15 this week. But the only teams that Auburn is losing to are the teams that are higher ranked than them. So LSU, uh, or sorry, Texas A&M, it's just, their schedule is just brutal. And so as we kind of flip now, to the on the field, kind of leave the history behind, the on the field situation for Texas A&M. And I think the reason that a lot of Georgia fans are nervous about this game, the reason I am nervous about this game is because of the quarterback of Texas A&M. Kellen Mond is, without a doubt, the best quarterback Georgia has faced all year. Um, He's got almost 2,500 yards this season. He completes about 64% of his passes. 18 touchdowns, six interceptions. He has been sacked 22 times. Offensive line for A&M, not nearly as good as Georgia's offensive line. Um, He's also attempted 328 passes this year. Just for some context, that's 60 more pass attempts than Jake Fromm has. So if you divide that out over, you know, 10 games so far, you're talking about throwing the ball significantly more every single game uh, than Georgia. So this this offense for A&M, They will run the ball, and I've heard a lot of people talk about the fact that they run out of a two-back set, which is a very traditional type of uh, offense. But it's not traditional in the way that Georgia's offense is is from like a pro-style standpoint. They just have a lot of different um, formations and different kind of play schemes and play foundations that they run out of, and it really fits Mond to a T. Mond, in addition to the passing statistics that I just gave you. He's run the ball 93 times for about 400 yards and seven more touchdowns. Now let me throw some context at you. Kellen Mond's 25 total touchdowns are more than Jake Fromm and DeAndre Swift have combined. Swift 
and Fromm have 23 total touchdowns. Mond, as I just said, 25. So Kellen Mond is a huge difference maker in this game. And for the season, he has played very, very well. And what you can also look at, if you kind of dig in, I've talked to you about the three losses already. If you dig into those games, they didn't lose those games because of Kellen Mond. So against Clemson, 24 for 42 for 236 yards. He had a pick and he had a touchdown. And he ran the ball uh, not very well in that game. But Clemson won that game 24 to 10. Mond played okay. Didn't play great. He wasn't a, you know, Two years ago, or I guess last year, when Clemson went to A&M, Mon nearly won the game by himself. Um, I mean, he just played out of his mind. He didn't have that type of game against Clemson this year on the road in Death Valley, but he played well against Auburn, where um, the Aggies lost 28-20 to at home. He was 31 for 49, 335 yards, two touchdowns, no interceptions. That's an excellent game. That's an excellent game against Auburn, and yet uh, Texas A&M lost against Alabama. Again, very similar to the Clemson game, uh, 24-42, or 260 yards, two touchdowns, no picks. Uh, he also, against Alabama, ran the ball 16 times for 90 yards and another touchdown. So three touchdowns against Alabama. The problem, Alabama won that game 47-28, so the A&M defense did not help Kellen Mond out at all. So what I see in those statistics is Mon won. The first thing that jumps out to me just because of the criticism surrounding Georgia's offense this year, 40-plus pass attempts in all three of those games. So it seems to me that Mon, or the way maybe to beat this A&M team is Mon's going to get his. He's a great quarterback. He's very, very talented. He's just a junior, so potentially coming back next year to be, you know, a serious threat in the West with Joe Burrow moving on from uh, LSU. And obviously the situation went around Tua. Uh, he was going to be gone either way, but it looks like now maybe the the quarterback situation at Alabama moving forward is, is a big question mark. So Mon will be the most experienced quarterback coming back in that division. So an opportunity maybe next year for A&M to make that big jump. But Mon's going to get his. What Georgia has to do is make sure they stop the run and limit Mond. If you can get him to turn the ball over, obviously that's always a big plus. But the players around Mond are good, but they're not great. So their key running back is Isaiah Spiller. Uh, 133 rushes this year for 796 yards. Eight touchdowns, so I mean obviously getting on the board. And then they have three wide receivers that I want to mention to you. Uh, Jahaman Osborne. I might not have said that name right. 54 catches, 744, three touchdowns. Uh, Courtney Davis, 41 catches, 489 yards, four touchdowns. And then Jalen Windermere. And this is 24 catches, only 366 yards, but six touchdowns. So we know we've seen Georgia struggle with slot receivers and tight ends. They have a good one, and he gets on the board a lot with six touchdowns so far this season. So for Georgia's defense that has been so good all year, there's no doubt in my mind that this is the biggest test for them. You're basically facing an offense. They don't do the hurry up as much as Auburn, but you're facing an offense that is similar to Auburn's in that they have a mobile quarterback who can run. They have a lot of different ingenuity. Jimbo is a offensive coach, so they have a lot of different things they like to do on offense. Um, a lot of creativity there, except 
I think offensively, a and is just a little bit better than Auburn. So it's going to be a big test for this Georgia defense to be uh, not only stop the run at the point of attack, the defensive linemen are going to have to pretty much do what they did last week and stop the run without a whole lot of help because there's enough that Mon can do with his legs that you're going to have to put a spy on him and just one linebacker who's just standing there waiting to make sure that he doesn't take off running down the field and making huge plays with his legs. So that kind of hurts your overall defensive scheme. So it's going to be interesting to see what plan Kirby has. I, you know, from a just a outside of Georgia fandom perspective, it's always very interesting. I think back to the Rose Bowl in 2017. To see Kirby match up with some of the best offensive minds in football, you always get a really, really good game. And you always get a really, really good plan for Georgia coming into that game. Think about what Georgia did, not just to Bo Nix last year, last week, but think about what Georgia did last year against Tua in the SEC championship game. I know he got injured, but Georgia really had a plan for coming in and shutting down the primary thing that Alabama wanted to do. So I'm very interested to see what the game plan is defensively and how Georgia plans on stopping or at least slowing down this potent A&M offense. I think the question surrounding Georgia has been, what if they get in a shootout? If they have to score 35 to win a game, can they do it? And they haven't had to do that, so that's a question out there. The assumption is that Georgia's defense can play well enough that Georgia doesn't end up being in a situation where they have to score that many points. But this this game could get crazy. It's going to rain uh, here in Athens tomorrow, kind of sketchy in the afternoon, what the field conditions may be. There's just a lot of different factors that Georgia may have to deal with here. And offensively, A&M's defense is not nearly as good as Florida. They're not nearly as good as Auburn. But there is going to be an emphasis because I, I don't think Georgia's going to be able to shut A&M down maybe the way they were able to shut Auburn down for three quarters last week. And if Georgia is in a back-and-forth game, it's going to put a lot of pressure on this offense to continue to keep up and continue to produce. Now, I'm not saying I think this game is going to be played in the 40s, but I think Georgia's really going to have to play well offensively to be able to stay with Texas A&M. One of the interesting things that this game, if it's close, may come down to is kicking. You know, and Georgia has one of the best kickers in the country in Rodrigo Blankenship. Seth Small, the kicker for A&M, is actually very good. 41 to 41 on extra points. I think the difference in the place that Georgia has a huge advantage is uh, Small is 15 of 20 uh, for on field goals this year. And all of his misses, except for one, he had one that was kind of closer in. But he's two for four from 40 to 49 yards, and he's only one for three from 50-plus. So... If this game comes down to having to kick some long field goals or a potential game-tying field goal late in the game, Georgia's got a big advantage there with Rodrigo. The other thing is that you're going to see two of the best punters in the country. Braden Mann is actually the guy who won the Punter of the Year award last year. Um, 48.2 average yards per kick. To compare that, um, Jake Camarda, also one of the best punters in the country, 47.9. So uh, they are two of the top six, statistically, two of the top six punters in the country. So special teams, we saw last week, Georgia, a huge gaffe on special teams. And if it weren't for 
an illegal block downfield before the ball had been touched or before the ball had gone 10 yards. The Georgia-Auburn game could have turned out very, very differently because of a bad special teams play from Georgia on that onside kick. So uh, I'm sure there's been some emphasis placed on special teams this week, but we're going to see some really good specialists in this game. And I think that uh, that could end up being a little bit of a thing. The other thing is turnover margin. Georgia has continued just to slowly gain in this area. They're plus three for the season. 11 turnovers created, only eight committed. I continue to point out each week when I throw this statistic at you that four of those eight turnovers Georgia has on the year were against South Carolina. So if you remove the South Carolina game, 11 forced turnovers and only four committed turnovers, which would put Georgia at a plus seven. Uh, A&M, even. 14 turnovers gained and lost this year. So A&M has turned the ball over more, but they've also forced more turnovers. Um, as we saw in Georgia's one loss this year, turning the ball over is a huge, huge problem for any team that commits a lot of turnovers. So I would expect uh, with Georgia's emphasis on havoc, you got to think that Georgia's going to be aggressive. Coming off of last week and the defensive performance they were able to put together, I know a lot of people have wanted to point to that fourth quarter, but I don't think what happened in the first quarter fourth quarter really negates all the positive things that Georgia's defense did. And a lot of offensive football is really centered around momentum. The crowd, if they're into the game early tomorrow and Georgia's defense can come out there and kind of slow A&M down early, I think you could see Georgia have a lot of success defensively against this A&M offense. So now it's time for my prediction, sure to be wrong. Uh, I think Georgia wins the game. I think it feels like one of those games that Georgia just needs it more. A&M's got a good team, but Georgia has everything in front of them right now. And I know one thing, I listened to a podcast uh, with Jim Donnan that comes out on Tuesdays uh, from UGASports.com, and Donnan feels really, really good about Georgia's chances against LSU. That's kind of how I feel. I, I feel like Georgia matches up really, really well with LSU. I think this is actually a much tougher matchup for Georgia because of A&M's kind of uh, – when I say they're a middle-of-the-road team, I'm not saying that they're not good. I think they are good, but they have no big deficiencies – their run defense is average. Their, their pass defense is a little bit above average. Overall, their, their rushing offense is average. Their passing offense is a little bit above average. They don't have a glaring weakness that Georgia is able to take advantage of. Whereas with LSU, their offense is so good, but it's matched up against Georgia's good defense. And then where Georgia's offense has kind of struggled at times this year, the LSU defense has struggled very much against lesser opponents in Vanderbilt and uh, Ole Miss in particular. And obviously we saw how well Alabama was able to move the ball, especially in the second half. So it's just a very good matchup for Georgia to keep them in that game, and then you never know what happens toward the end. Whereas with this game, I think there's a legitimate chance that Georgia could struggle to stop A&M because of the dynamic nature of Kellen Mond. And I think Georgia obviously has shown at times that they can struggle against anybody offensively. So I think Georgia will end up winning this game. I don't really have a good feel for a score prediction. For some reason, I, I think they'll end up winning by 10 or 14, but I don't think it's going to feel as good as that. Now, here's what I would like to see. 
I said on the podcast last week, if we could beat Auburn, we have an opportunity against some not great defenses for the next few weeks to be able to maybe get some momentum. What I would love to see is a very aggressive offensive game plan centered around running the ball. And and I know what I just said may sound contradictory to a lot of people who are listening to this, but there is a way to aggressively run the football. And I think it starts with coming out, completing some short passes on first down, getting the defense to soften up, and then taking advantage of an AM, A&M run defense that is not nearly as good as the last three teams that Georgia has played. Georgia should be able to run all over Texas A&M. And I'm talking about with Swift, I expect him to be well over 100 yards. With Harrion, maybe close to 100 yards. Throw in some James Cook. Throw in some end rounds to Demetrius Robertson. Throw in some pounding up the middle with Zeus. I want to see Georgia run the ball 40 to 45 times in this game. And then as the run game is playing well, that's when you can take your shots on play action. I know there's been a lot of talk about why Georgia doesn't play action more. Well, the reality of Georgia's offense since the middle of the season when they really started struggling is Georgia has struggled to consistently run the ball. Think about last week. Yes, Swift individually had a great game. He made some plays and was able to go over 100 against a great Auburn defense. But Georgia at no point in that game really established the run and just man-on-man ran the ball right at Auburn and took advantage of that. One drive in the third quarter, they were able to do that. But for the consistent part of that game, there's just too many times throughout the season. Just think to yourself right now, how many times have you seen Georgia run it up the middle and get stuffed? Well, that no-gain play or sometimes you know a slight loss play, it messes up the Georgia offense. A traditional pro-style offense is all about down and distance. Georgia's not equipped to, to convert a lot of third and tens. They did against Florida, and they won that game, but that's not how this offense is going to play week in and week out. So what I really want to see is Georgia to take advantage of the running opportunities they have in this game, hit a couple of big plays, and really create some offensive confidence going into the Tech game. Then, blow Tech out of the water. I'm talking about 52-7 to from 2002, that kind of blowout. Just absolutely go to Atlanta, crush them, put up 40 or 50 points, put your foot on their neck early and just tear them up. They're not nearly as good as us. So come out of this A&M game with some offensive confidence, stomp Georgia Tech like a dog. And then you've got two games where you've created some positive things on offense, some good feelings on offense, headed into the LSU SEC championship game where maybe at that point, Everybody feels just a little bit more confident. I think Georgia has the players to compete offensively with any team in the country. The problem is that the confidence is not there from Jake Fromm, from James Coley, from Kirby Smart. The offense hasn't performed in a way that has made the coaching staff and their quarterback feel like they can trust their receivers and that they can trust their players at this point. So I think it's kind of a circle. I think the lack of production leads to a more conservative style because you don't want to open it up. You don't want to open yourself up to mistakes. What Georgia needs to do over the next two weeks is really, really create some confidence, not only for the, the receivers. You know, that's why the Cager thing has been such a big deal. It's obvious that Jake Fromm trusts Lawrence Cager. The problem is Cager is hurt. He's been playing hurt 
for much of this season. And last week at Auburn, he got hit one time. He didn't play anymore. It's really unclear about how much he's going to play against A&M. Jake Fromm has to be able to create some confidence and create some trust with some of these other other receivers. You see it happening with Robinson, or uh, sorry, you see it happen with Robinson, yes, but you see it happening with Dominic Blaylock. You see it happening slowly with George Pickens. So what we need is we need some positive pass plays. We need Eli Wolf to catch the ball. Drops are a huge problem. Again, down in distance for this offense is maybe more important than it is for any other team in the country because of the style that we play. A drop pass on first down means you have to run on second down. It means if you don't pick up five or six on that second down run, you're sitting there looking at a third and long situation. When Georgia has to pass, they've done a really, really good job of protecting, but they haven't been able to do a good job about getting open and making big plays consistently downfield. The strength of this Texas A&M defense is their secondary, their cornerbacks and their safeties. So Georgia, if they just have to go out and pass man on man, I don't think they're going to have a lot of success there. Now, if Georgia's running the ball successfully and you have to pull a safety up just to be able to slow Georgia down in the running game, now you've got more man-on-man situations or, or man-to-man situations, one-on-one situations for guys like Pickens and Blaylock, and we've seen them have success in those situations. So my hope in this game is that Georgia will, no matter what the score ends up being, I mean, obviously I want Georgia to win, but past that, I want to see this offense start getting going just a little bit because I think a little confidence coming out of this game can create a lot of confidence coming out of the Tech game, which can then set Georgia up for a legitimate opportunity to beat the number one team in the country and to make the college football playoff. I'll go ahead and give you a number. I think it's 35-21. I think uh, A&M's offense does a little bit more than people have been doing to Georgia's defense. But at the end of the day, I think the Georgia offense is going to get rolling. And I think we are headed for some very good times in Athens. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast today. I hope you are planning a great and fun weekend. Thanksgiving coming up. We'll be putting the podcast out next week on our normal schedule. Probably recording earlier in the week uh, since there's so many family activities and everything going on towards the end of the week. But it's a fun time of the year. Enjoy time with your family. Enjoy what we will hope will be a big win for the dogs on Saturday on Senior Day. And we'll be back next week, perhaps with a watch along or a, a rewatch episode on Monday. Thank you so much again. And as always, go dogs.